amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast. Regular listeners might find it a little bit jarring to hear a different voice opening the show today. James Gray will be joining Calvin Besson and I live from Beijing later. But we do have a special guest to fill the void. All will be revealed soon. Today we are going to be talking about behind the scenes of the controversial umpire empire. Juan Martín del Potro's last hurrah, Andy Murray's decision to skip the clay court season, a first international media interview with Peng Shui, Alexander Bublik's first ATP title, Emma Raducanu's off-court course case, and random tidbits across the world of tennis involving Carlos Alcaraz, Stefano Sissipas, Albert Ramos-Vinolas, Xiao Souza, and Dominic Team. A packed schedule. Um, so quite a lot to get through, but I'm going to start off by introducing those with me today so far in part one. We've got Calvin. Calvin, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Um, been watching a fair bit of tennis live over the last couple of weeks, so um, that's nice. Um, yeah, there's been a bit of a gap, haven't there, in the last week? There wasn't much going on TV-wise, tennis-wise, was there? Yeah, I don't think there's a similar single WTA tournament, but a few... ATP ones we'll sink our teeth into later. But now let's introduce our, our famous guest. This man barely needs an introduction, but it is his debut on the Love Tennis podcast. He's the Telegraph's tennis correspondent and renowned leader of Briggs fam. It is Simon Briggs. Simon, how are you? <laughs> nice drum roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, thank you. Nice to speak to you. Good. Um, Let's kick off with the main reason you're here. You've broken a bit of a big news story in the tennis world this week. I called it behind the scenes of the umpire empire earlier, which is probably a little bit more dramatic than it actually is. But um, German umpire Soren Friemel, he's been banned for 12 months over abusive power. Uh, Friemel, of course, was the umpire who was disqualified. Uh, he disqualified Novak Djokovic, rather, at the 2020 US Open. Um, he's entered voluntary suspension after a younger male imp- umpire made serious allegations about his behaviour. Bit of an unusual situation, Simon. Can you talk us through quickly what's happened here? Well, um, it's all quite uh, shrouded in legalese, but um, you know the key point was that the International Tennis Federation employs Freeman as a head of officiating, so he's effectively the top official in the world of tennis, really. Um, the ITF have a, um, a squad of umpires, the ATP have a squad, the WTA have a squad. There's about uh, 25 officials on the on the books of the three tours, but Fremel's, you know, the biggest name, probably. Um, the US Open referee as well. 
And the uh, allegations against him were brought May 2021 by a younger male umpire um, described um, by the ITF spokesperson as inappropriate comments or invitations. Um, and it was a long investigation. It, it ruled in December that he should serve a 12-month suspension and he appealed. So I finally had the um, confirmation just last week. I've been following it for quite a long time. Um, and it took a long time to resolve. Uh, and now he said um, he has actually given an interview. He gave an interview to the Westphalian Times. Well, that's the English uh, version of the name. I'm not going to attempt the German one, um, which I guess would have been his local paper. Um, I think he's from Munster originally, though he lives in London. Uh, and he said that he wasn't going to contest the verdict anymore, that the damage had been done to his reputation. Um, he did, he did low-key query the uh, judgment in that interview, um, but uh, he's accepted it in, in the sense that he's not going to challenge it anymore. And now it's a question of what's going to happen in terms of employment. It looks like Wimbledon aren't going to use him um, for this summer. Uh, the ITF have said that they're going to review what happens. He's, he's still under suspension until June the 18th. And um, then the US Open also told me that they hadn't made plans for their official roster for the US Open coming up this September. Now, normally he'd be there automatically as, as referee and head of the show. So they're obviously considering their options. We quite often talk on this podcast about different roles in the sport and how these sort of things come about. How on earth does a story about this come about? I mean, obviously, without revealing your exact sources, does someone just call you and say, hey, check this out, what's going on? How did you kind of get like the sniffing dog on the tail of this? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was I was told that um, there was uh, an investigation in train and, um, and it was a, a tricky one to report on. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of legal boxes that need to be ticked, but um, once the verdicts have been handed down and once I had... Um, official steer, steer from the International Tennis Federation about the nature of the judgment, the nature of the offence. And, you know, we went to press last week and uh, it was relatively straightforward from there. Um, I think, you know, the, it's, still, it's still not exactly um, the most transparent case you're going to find in tennis. It's still fairly opaque to the outsider. But, um, you know, it's clear that if somebody's being uh, suspended for 12 months uh, for abuse of power and unethical conduct, then, then obviously something's gone quite badly wrong in the process. And, um, and uh, as the, the, the leading official in the game, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a reasonably uh, big fish that we're talking about. And um, it is quite ironic, I suppose, that his, his main visible moment in the sport was defaulting um, uh, Djokovic from the 2020 US Open. Uh, so most of the social media response has not really been to engage with any of the content. Not that it's that easy, as I say, because it's, it's reasonably opaque. Uh, but it's been mostly people saying karma has come to get him. <laughs> and who <laughs> better to deliver that? Novak fans who felt that uh, Novak had been hard done by in, in that uh, moment. I was going to say, and who, who better to deliver that than their greatest ally, Simon Briggs? Exactly, yeah. They're, 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 I've never been so popular. <laughs> With all the crocodiles. Um, I mean, this is a pretty unusual, I mean, it's obviously a pretty unusual situation, but the, how often do investigations like this happen in the umpire world? I mean, it's certainly the first I can really think of. Have there been any other examples? Is this a complete unique case? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's... Uh... It's not something that happens every day, that's for sure. Um, it's uh, it's a quick question of uh, the, the, the the quote from the ITF spokesperson spoke about the, the problem being the uh, the imbalance of power between the head the head official and you know more junior official. Now, what we've got to remember here is that the umpires are quite a precarious bunch in most cases. So, apart from the twenty five um, full time staff on the three tours. Um, people are working on a piecemeal basis. Um, they don't have health insurance. They don't have pensions. Uh, it's not an easy life. Um, there might be quite a lot of travel involved, and there might be um, a certain amount of 
surface glamour, but it's uh, it's quite a difficult business as well to to, to to evaluate who deserves appointments, who deserves to get the the badges. There is there's a system of badges, gold, silver, and bronze, which um, which put you on a certain level in the sport. And there's a lot of people who've over the years who've, who've sort of been dropped out of the system for one way, one reason or another, who aren't happy about that. So the umpires are, the officials are quite a strange world. They, they, they are quite closed off from everybody else. They're not allowed to speak to the media by their um, terms and their contracts. They have to get specific permission from their employers even to talk about you know, relatively innocuous thing like let's say you know I, I remember speaking to um, um, Mohamed Layani about the um, the Isnama hoop match I think it was Layani um, and you know his, his great feat of managing to get through that match without needing a pee um, but that, that required an awful lot of um, setting up you know because there's so many um, restraints so many checks and balances to make sure that the, the umpires are kept completely away from everybody else um, but there is a problem, I think, in, in potentially in the way that it's set up. You know, you look at Carlos Ramos, for instance, who's um, not been getting as much work of late um, and, and seems to have suffered as a result of, of his, some might say brave, some might say wrong. I mean, I, I thought it was at least correct by the letter of the law, his decision to penalise Serena Williams for coaching. Um, the US Open final. Uh, there's a sort of potential conflict of interest when you have umpires working for a tour who could also be ruling against the big stars on that tour, um, which is one reason why I think there's an argument that umpires should be made independent and placed under the same sort of umbrella as anti-corruption and anti-doping, which are run separately from the tours. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And that, that to be fair, was something I was really thinking when I was reading your piece this week. I mean, is that particularly the one that kind of mentioned that interview did. I mean, it's so rare to see kind of full-on interviews with umpires. The other example I was kind of thinking, was it Arno Gorbass after he'd been hit in the eye from a ball from Denis Shapovalov? That was the only other umpire story I could really think of popping to my mind. There was another quite quite significant one for me. Um, I remember when the Daily Mail and the Telegraph ran the story about... Um, uh, Roger Federer's wife, Merka, shouting out during the ATP finals match where he was playing Sam Wawrinka. Yeah. Do you remember that? With the we ran that story and um, and we were being heckled to bits to bit by two more um, hand bases <laughs> uh, until the next day, Cedric Murray, I think it was, who, who'd been um, umpiring that match, happened to give an interview on Swiss radio which basically backed up exactly what we'd written, um, because they're, they're, they're otherwise, then I don't think anyone, anyone would have ever confirmed it, and we would have been continuing to be accused of, of making up this, uh, this horrific slur. Well, so umpires, there you go. They can be, they can be good as well as bad. Um, the, the other example was Damien Steiner, the Argentine umpire, who gave a very warts and all interview um, about uh, who he thought was good, who he thought was bad. Uh, Quite, um, quite dramatic claims in that one, and I think he lost his job over it. Yeah, I was going to say that I couldn't remember his name, but that, that was the other interview that was springing to mind. Um, let's let's move on from umpires onto players. And Calvin has been texting me all week with a tear in his eye because I think this might be your favourite tennis player, Calvin. Is the one I think, and that may not be categorically true, but he's the one that every time I see Calvin talk about him. He starts kind of really glowing with excitement. I, I feel like you've got such a big soft spot for this man. It is, of course, Juan Martin Del Potro. He's announced his time as a professional tennis player is likely coming to an end. He plays Federico Del Bonis at the Argentina Open in Buenos Aires in the early hours of Wednesday morning UK time. He says it will probably be more of a farewell than a comeback. He's talked about his knee giving him three years of trouble and he wants a chance to say goodbye. What better tournament to do it than at the Buenos Aires Open? Calvin, how how gutted are you? Yeah, he, he is my favourite tennis player. He's one of my favourite athletes, actually. Uh, being that I'm a Man United supporter and we've been rubbish for the last 10 years, um, he's probably one of my favourite sportsmen. 
Um, yeah, I think he's fantastic. I think he's a great player and I, he seems by all accounts, I've never met him personally, but most people, everyone I know who knows him says that he's just a top bloke, um, just a phenomenally explosive player. Um, he was one of those guys who just always seemed to get himself in great matches. I could list off the top of my head seven or eight brilliant five-set matches that I've seen him play, um, usually at the US Open, given uh, a couple at Wimbledon. Um, he's just, I thought he was brilliant, and he obviously had his first run of terrible luck with his injuries. And as I said on Twitter the other day, he came back basically not being able to hit a, a drive backhand. He only had a sort of slice backhand. And I can't think of another player who you took, if you took their drive backhand away, any player in the top 10 or top 20, where they'd be anywhere near that ranking. And he came back and got to five in the world and a Grand Slam final and an Olympics final by doing that. If you took, for example, if you took Djokovic's drive backhand away on Adele's, they wouldn't, I don't think they'd be in top 15 in the world. I really don't. Um, if you took Murray's away, he wouldn't. Zverev, Zverev wouldn't be in the top 100. Um, <laughs> if, you took, if, you took, if you took his drive back and away. Um, but um, yeah, so it's a phenomenal maybe. achievement that he did that. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's so sad, because especially because this last injury that looks like it's going to be the end of him is not even his body letting him down. I think there was always a chance with the way that Del Potro was built and the way that he played, that his greatest strength was that he had these long limbs and fast twitch muscles. And that, as we know through the history of sport, players with that type of physiology tend not to have long careers. And it's caused him problems his whole career. But this one was so innocuous that he slipped and broke his kneecap, I think. That was the, the incident. It was nothing to do with wear and tear or anything just a terrible slice of luck that he's got and now he seems to have spent two years to be coming back and although it's not a definitive he's finally finished I know we've been here with Murray before but I think with Del Potter I think the problem seems to be that he's still getting a lot of pain and I think if you're still getting a lot of pain after two years it's probably going to remain that way and I just hope he has a sort of happy pain-free rest of his life really. There's a good shout there from Simon that Berrettini might be one who you could give the uh, slice backhand to. And that, that's probably just because his backhand is quite rubbish. And we've kind of spoken about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, a convenient one, that one, actually. Yeah. I mean, Federer, you probably, Federer would probably still be in the top 10 um, if he would. Um, but but none of the others, um, I, I don't think. And he, let's not forget as well with, with Del Potro, he's a phenomenal tennis player. Like I, I, I did a little bit of research yesterday myself that after after he turned 21, because he actually came onto the circuit pretty early um, and he was playing main tours and played a lot of the big guys, um, a lot of the big three early on in his career and so got some losses against that. But after he turned 21, he has a win-loss record against Federer, Djokovic and Nadal of 35%. Murray has 34%, I think, and nobody else comes close. He was the only player who regularly beat those three guys um, in in big matches as well. So if we've got a top three, or even if we've got a big a big three, or even a big four, if you include Murray, Del Potro was, I guess, in old terms, the fifth Beatle on that one. Um, he was, yeah, a phenomenal talent. Dan but, might argue with you on that one. I was going to say, yeah, that ring could probably have a, a bit of a word, but let's no, move but- into. Stan's had a strange career though, hasn't he? I think even by his own admission, there was some talk that that Murray was, uh, him and Murray would end up on the same number of slams. But I think Stan said himself that if you look at their actual careers outside of the slams, it's not even close between him and Murray. You look at the the Masters series and that kind of thing. And I don't know how many, it's James James, he'd be on hand with a number straight away. But um, I don't know how many actually career titles um, that uh, Wawrink has won. Del Potro has won 22. Um, and, you know, obviously a slam and that kind of thing in there. So, yeah. So I can quickly confirm covering James's role, not quite as quickly and slickly, admittedly. 16. 16. Oh, Briggsy beat me to the podcast. Yeah. So pretty, pretty good, and, but not quite good. Yeah. And also, but I think it's important with the point we're making is that Del Potro missed his three peak years. Obviously, Stan got injured as well, but Stan was the wrong age of 30 when he got injured. Whereas Del Potro missed three years actually in his prime and then came back after what would be his prime and made finals of Grand Slams. 
finals of an Olympics. That running out at the Olympics, you forget, he played Djokovic in the first round of that Olympics and then beat Nadal in the semis. I would say he's the only man I can remember making Djokovic cry on court, but of course that was Medvedev or the US Open crowd this year that kind of ruined that record for him. We Moving into the abstract slightly here that we've kind of touched upon, if Del Potter had a fully fit career, A, how many slams does he win? B, how many fewer slams do the big three wins and who loses the most slams? Let's start with Briggsy. Sure. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> you are such searching questions on this podcast. <laughs> uh, um, I, don't know. I mean, I think he. I, I put it. I mean, I, I'd say he win three slams, maybe because he's. I, I'd put him on a par with Vavrinka and Murray. Um, and then I don't know who we take them off. Probably whole court. So probably Novak would lose one, and one of the other guys would lose one. But. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the, the great thing for me was the way that he he really spoke directly to the crowd, didn't he? I think, was it the Nadal match where he kind of played five sets at Wimbledon and there was a lot of sort of hamming it up? I, I, that sounds like I'm being critical, but in fact, it was it was great. It was all the kind of the, the interaction that I think he was he sitting down on the hoardings at the side of the court kind of um, trying to... Uh, convey almost in silent movie style how exhausted he was and he really had that connection with the crowd which you just don't see many players having that ability to touch people with their presence and their kind of personality without even hearing them speak you know with with his body language and there was something kind of slightly mournful about him wasn't there this sort of great big shaggy figure um but but very kind of very appealing um so I think he was a player who some players just reach a bigger audience and he was one of them. That um, that match at Wimbledon, I'll always remember um, as one of the most annoying moments of my tennis journalist's career where it clashed with England's semi-final at the World Cup. Um, it was a real pain trying to navigate watching both of them. But as it happened, England lost and it was a fantastic match. So can't have too many great complaints. Calvin higher wasn't, than wasn't Andy Murray doing commentary on the BBC was. as well? And it, it was and, the, uh, match. The, the, the There's one forehand where he just uh, I think it was uh, El Potro running running to his right and he hits this this ball at 160 k's I think it was or maybe maybe it's 100 miles an hour um, I think it was 167 k's I think I remember. And Murray starts chuckling and doesn't stop for about 20 seconds, which is quite a good commentary, actually. It, it was actually the match that Murray decided that he was against best of five sets tennis as well. Like, even though he said it he, was enjoyed it, he missed like a dinner engagement or something. It was like, oh, I don't think fans have time to watch all of this anymore. We need the best of three. <laughs> um, <laughs> Does that make a regular appearance in this, in this yeah, Very occasionally. James normally tells me off when I start pulling that out. So, but he's not here today. So I, uh, the shackles are off. This is where our ratings drop down next week, I think. <laughs> um, Calvin, high, higher or lower than three slams, fully fit Del Potro whole career? Um, I, I, I caveat it with saying I think it would have been hard, again, with his physiology, I think it would have been hard for him to have a fully fit career. Players that tall tend not to. So, but I think he was also unlucky with the amount of time he spent out. I think he'd have ended up with maybe a little bit more. I, th- I wouldn't surprise me if he'd have got five. Um, but I think the bigger impact would have been is how it would have impacted all the other players because I think he would have taken care of of some of them and like maybe then Murray would have ended up with more. Like I could have seen Del Potro taking care of Djokovic and Murray actually matched up quite well with Del Potro um, in sort of finals and that kind of thing. Their, their matchup was quite good or him taking care of Nadal sometimes or Federer. He, he always fancied himself against Federer, I think. So I think it would just have, it would have been, I don't think we'd have been in a situation now where all, th- I know one of them's on 21 now, where all three of them would have been on 20. I, I think it might have had a, had a much impact on Djokovic and Federer. I think would have been the two. For example, Federer won those those three slams in his sort of late comeback, where I think he beat Nadal once in the fi- in the final, 
But other than that, he had quite a cushy little run into them, didn't he? The Wimbledon and the other Aussie Open where he beat Chilich in the final of both. Right, let's move move on seamlessly one more time. You mentioned Andy Murray there. He's also announced he's cutting out some of the tour this year, saying he's not going to play on clay. His reasoning being, oh, the past couple of years, the clay has made my issues worse. Right, I'll stop that now. But he says he doesn't want to take that risk, um, not rule that return to the dirt in future, one of the natural services, as we call them on this podcast. Um, but he's going to be cautious this year in a bid to take a launch at the grass. He's putting a lot of emphasis on Wimbledon this year. Is he, is he thinking that it's going to be potentially his last Wimbledon? He has already said this year that if he's going to keep on losing second round of slam, much motivation for him to continue. So um does, does have that slight um, uh, undertone of a guy who's not sure how many more times he's going to be going around the block. Alvin, is it a big issue to cut out playing that many matches and then kind of switch it on, if you like, at the grass? The biggest issue for me would be that it's going to mean he's almost certainly not seeded at Wimbledon. I think if he played a full season, if he had a decent hardcore sort of indoor hardcore swing now and a semi-decent clay court season, there might be a chance for him to get into the top 32. But I can't see that happening now. I'm not going to win one of Miami or Indian Welts, which again he's not can't see that happening. So he's gonna come in and he's gonna play A seed in the first two rounds. Which is gonna to be tough for him because again he has this problem where he keeps having to go five sets to beat players and he's having to go five sets to beat players lower down and I can't see him beating any of the top thirty two really comfortably. Um, you probably played Bashalashvili again, won't he? So um, it'd probably be five sets again. Do, does it change on grass for him, that narrative, though? I mean, surely comfortably is best served if he's fit. It, it probably is. And he could play Djokovic, Zverev, Tsitsipas, um, Medvedev, any of those guys, and you don't make him favourite against any of those. Yeah, some of the lower seeds, he'll probably fancy himself beating them. But... Um, Again, it's the issue where he's going to have to go long matches again, I would think. It's but, a strange thing watching Andy when he's playing the events because it, it, you see the kind of the top 20, top 30 in a different when you're watching him and you think every every time he goes to a tournament, you're looking at the first round and going, cool, that's not easy, is it? And he's drawn Bublik in, in Rotterdam. And, it's just like, and, and then you think about his recovery challenges. It just... Um, he, he said he says quite often that he doesn't feel the game has moved on since he's at, well since he finished his organic full organic body career. Um, but you do look a little bit sometimes these matches now that they're playing, and you do wonder. I mean, I I looked at sits the past Medvedev um, match in Australia and thought they're they're playing decent level now. These lads, you know, it's a long way for him to be able to keep up with them. With, with with the handicaps he's got. I don't think the game's moved on massively, but he's not the same player. He can't move. Mm. His, his biggest asset was always his movement, and he, he can't move the same. So in, ter- in that respect, the game has moved on for him because it's a completely different situation that he's in. Seems so- when he's when he's pushed wide to his forehand, particularly when he's pushed wide twice in a row, um, he's not able to get back to the middle of the court and back out to the forehand side well enough. And it's amazing how just the, those tiny margins just stack up over the course of a, a match, a week, and a season, and, and they end up with you ranked a lot lower down, down the chart, doesn't it? And, you know, he got to the final, obviously, in Sydney. So that was a big step forward, which is... Slightly undermined by by the disappointment of of the Australian Open. I mean, he said during the Australian Open that, that he would rather have best of five and a day in between. But I think that's kidology. I just don't see don't see slams being where he's going to make an impact now. I, I just they're, they're bloody long those matches, aren't they? And and, and he can potentially get through some hour and a half um, three setters, better three setters in. Um, 
in the ATP event. So I still see the ATP as, as being where he can achieve something. He set himself the goal of taking his 46 titles and turning it into 50. Maybe he'll go play some 250s, you know, go, go and pick some weak events and give himself a boost that way. Um, I think he, he, he's going to have to, if he doesn't see some silverware this year, I think he might call time. I'd agree with that, yeah. I think I think that's about bang on. Um, I think it's, again, it's what he calls success. I know that certain people in his team saw success, and this was 18 months ago, they saw success as being competitive against the best players in the world. But they were concerned that Andy that as success, that he thought that he could be the best player in the world again. I think he's probably revised that a little bit now because he's talking, like Simon says, about get into 50 titles. So that could be two fifties. But the strange thing is though, is that when we talk about these easy matches, like the match against Taro Daniel that he lost, that wasn't a, really a physical thing for me. That was, he still should have been able to win that. If you can beat Bishalashvili with a metal hip, Taro Daniel, like, like Simon said there, there's a lot of good players around now. I don't think any of us, no disrespect, any of us would put Taro Daniel in that list. That looked like a pretty easy second round draw. Um, or it's certainly a very winnable one. And it's those ones that will frustrate him, I think, that he's losing matches like that. I don't think he'd have any problem. He doesn't have any problem losing to Tsitsipas or Zverev or, or Shapovalov. But going out second round to Taro Daniel, that's, I think, will be disappointing for him. Oh, we know. I, we foolishly, I foolishly thought he'd walk through his draw, beating Yannick Sinner and make the second week in Australia. So I was frustrated on his behalf as well. Um, while Murray's struggles uh, have been continuing at Grand Slam level, he's got a t- chance this week, starting off against Alexander Bublik, who's of course won a title against Alexander Zverev on Sunday. And he's got a familiar face in his box, Mr. Danny Valverde. Simon, obviously... Valverde has proven himself to be a pretty top-level coach, had good success with Murray in the past. Do you see this being a, a good move, the two reuniting? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's to be comfortable. I mean, they, they go back all the way to um, sanchez Catal Academy, don't they? Um, about uh, almost 20 years ago. So um, there's nobody who knows Murray any better. It actually be, I imagine they have some quite interesting conversations about some of the things we've been talking about and uh, targets and and what's it all for and what, what, what defines success at this stage of a career. So yeah, it could be really good for him. And obviously, um, Danny's spoken for, I think, in the sense that he's still with Stan Wawrinka, isn't he? If Stan is coming back on the tour, he, he looks like he's training now, getting ready for his latest comeback from knee problems. Um, and he also said that, uh, that he's not quite as in demand as a player when the coaches are looking for people to work with as he used to be. So he's, he's going to take his time finding the long-term appointment. Calvin, do you know Danny well? Have you <clears throat> crossed paths with him much over the years? I don't know him at all, no. Um, never met him. So I uh, can't offer you much on that front. Um it's it's interesting how I assume that the the partnership that he had with the the Dutch coach has ended. Is that has that come to an end after the trial period? Yeah, end of it. Yeah, I think um, I think that's the ones that one's now done. Yeah, um, it's interesting with Valverde though because I don't know. I might be wrong, but has he ever had him as the only coach? Wasn't he always with somebody else at the time that Valverde was around? Either. Lendl or Gilbert. Moresmo, yeah, that's right. Moresmo. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, be an interesting dynamic. And do we expect Murray to beat Bublik this week? I mean, Bublik's such a random player. They call him the Kazakh Kyrgios. Any, how, how do you see that one going? I would think, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd favour Murray in that one. But like you say, we, I mean, Murray's results are so up and down, we don't, it's tough to gauge and public. I've never predicted a match with public in it. <laughs> do you like public? I know how much you like Kyrgios. Uh, do you prefer public? Uh, I don't mind public. The only thing I don't like about Kyrgios is he doesn't play. <laughs> I can't see how this is that you count him as a top. You keep referring to him on this podcast and he's, he's a part time tennis player. Played 10 <laughs> tournaments in the last two years. So 
<laughs> Bublik plays all the time, so I have no issue with Bublik at all. Great fun. We have a, a bit of a dodgy Kyrgios uh, vibe, me and Calvin, where I love him and Calvin gets sick of me talking about him. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there on that front. Simon, we're going to say goodbye to you at this point as we await the arrival of James. Uh, I did tell you you'd only be required for 15 minutes and I realise I've kept you for about half an hour. So I apologise <laughs> for my poor timekeeping as well as awful hosting, but hope you've enjoyed yourself it was worth it for the andy murray improvement <laughs> that was simon briggs from the telegraph welcome back to part two of the love tennis podcast we have said goodbye to simon briggs and we say hello to the far superior uh, <laughs> younger model of james gray of inews James, you're in Beijing. How is it? How are you? I'm um, well. I, I think that only half of what you said is true. I'm certainly younger than Briggsy, but I don't know about far superior. Uh, yeah, it's it's remarkable. It's I mean, you've stayed up late for this. It's 6 a.m. here. Uh, I mean, no one's been allowed in China for two years, so I do feel like I'm sort of behind the uh, bamboo curtain, so to speak. But yes, I'm currently on unfirewalled Wi-Fi as well. I've been doing things like using Twitter and WhatsApp in China, which is illegal most of the rest of the time. So yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, I would f- urge anyone to follow me on Instagram if they want more about it. Now, you, you can't see what we look like here, but well, me and Calvin look quite relaxed at home in our usual settings. James is kind of sat. There's a big stone wall behind him and he's got a mouth. <laughs> on it. All, all looks a bit worrying, James. You've not been... Yeah, I'm, I am, I'm, not under, I'm not under someone else's control. You know, I am doing this of my own free will. Well, not really free will. You know, we do this podcast every week and sometimes it doesn't feel like that. But um, yeah, we have to wear a mask at all times. Uh, not in our rooms, but if you're in our hotel room, you're on Chinese Wi-Fi, which has the great firewall, and therefore you can't get on Zoom or WhatsApp or Gmail or anything like that. So, yes, I'm in the hotel lobby, which is uh, quite sort of traditional uh, in terms of its decor, but it's also very dark because they don't really want you using the internet uh, very much. So they turn the lights off as much as they can to stop you kind of using it. It's, It's a real assault on the senses, the whole thing. When you turn up, whole airport is dressed in hazmat suits like literally everyone in the airport when you arrive is wearing head-to-toe hazmat suits goggles masks the whole lot thing uh and it takes you about three hours to get through because they sort of move you in very incremental sections they don't mind you being really close to you know your fellow passengers but the idea that someone from the outside world might give them covid which you know is, is a concern but uh as i said before we came on the call they don't necessarily understand COVID in the same way that we do, which might sound very patronising, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's new, that's for sure. Well, I'm, I'm sure you'll look back fondly on a great experience once you've actually had some sleep and rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, quite. And and you're kind of in the centre of one of tennis's big stories that's broken today. Um, it actually occurred in a Beijing hotel. I'm not sure if it's the same hotel you're in. I suspect not. But Peng Shui um, has done her first international media interview since her sexual assault allegations against former vice president of China's Communist Party, Zhang Gaoli. Um, this was with Le Keep. Now, it's worth saying from the start, this was a very controlled hour-long interview in a Beijing hotel with answers delivered in front of a Chinese Olympic official. She's called it an enormous misunderstanding and denied saying anyone had committed a sexual assault against her. She said she erased her Weibo post because she wanted to and questioned why there was so much worry. WTA chief Steve Simon has released a statement since saying his concerns aren't alleviated and reiterated the WTA's desire for a formal investigation. James, there's been a bit of criticism about this interview happening in the first place under those conditions and whether that should have occurred, I suppose, or whether they shouldn't have allowed kind of those controlled circumstances. What are your general feelings on it and what's the mood been like in Beijing among the sports media there? I mean, it's obviously been a massive story for all of us. And one of the big challenges about covering this Winter Olympics has been how much you talk about you know, the big problems. China, 
are going to use this this Olympics to sports wash their reputation. Uh, that was as clear from the very start when uh, the opening flight, the opening ceremony featured uh, a Ouija athlete. I think the only Ouija athlete in the Chinese team uh, helping to light the flame. That's no coincidence. The other thing that's been clear about these games is that the IOC will be utterly complicit in any attempts to sports watch their reputation. Uh, when the uh, one of the IOC bigwigs was asked about the fact that this uh, Ouija athlete had been used in, a, in what the IOC consistently call a strictly apolitical event, they are asked about the fact that a Ouija athlete had been used to, to light the flame, and they called it a lovely gesture, and then stuck their fingers in their ears and went la 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 whenever anyone mentioned genocide or anything like that. Uh, what's great is that I am sitting in the middle of Beijing talking about these issues freely because we are under the Olympic Charter and that affords us much more freedom. Now, I might regret saying that in a week, but I don't think I will. <laughs> um, I've written some pretty strong stuff about the Chinese uh, regime already. Uh, it, it was a remarkable story that broke, yeah, I guess it was overnight in the UK last night um, or Monday night, uh, Sunday night as it, as it would have been. Uh, the interview, as you say, was conducted with a member of the Chinese Olympic Authority present. The questions were submitted in advance. They were uh, then submitted to Peng Shui in front of the official who translated her answers from Chinese uh, into French for the Likit journalist in question. So we've no real assurances that what she claims to have been saying is indeed what was translated back. The Chinese Olympic Committee, by the way, uh, I, their office in the media centre... I mean, the private offices are all very anonymous because they're all temporary, but there's not really very many people in there. Like you'd think the Chinese Olympic Committee would have one of the biggest offices going. And I suppose they will have a permanent office somewhere in Beijing, but it, it really is, I don't know, it feels a bit like a puppet office. Uh, so I don't really know what's going on with them. But yeah, it's a complete farce. Like there's absolutely no way this is a genuine interview. Uh, and if it were, why on earth would there have been that official there in the first place? Just one small point there. I think um, Lakeep said is that they did have their own translator that listened to the audio in Paris to corroborate what they said. So in terms of she, what she said is accurate, I suppose. It's whether what, <laughs> what I she... I yeah. kind of any faith that she was saying it deliberately, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, there's a lot of kind of issues here. I mean... It, I suppose we've kind of covered a lot of this ground before in terms of what next for this story. Obviously, WTA is still out of China. What are your feelings now? Is there something going to happen more at the Winter Olympic Games? Is it likely that Peng will be spoken to again? What's your kind of feeling there? Well, it was kind of remarkable because they said she'd been at the mixed curling on Saturday. And I was at the curling on Saturday and I didn't see her. Uh, and no one did, which is kind of remarkable because there aren't very many people at these venues. There's very limited crowds allowed in. Uh, I was at the, the match last night between GB and Norway, the semi-final, and there were maybe 150 people there and maybe another 50 media and another 50 venue staff. It's the National Aquatic Centre. It is sparsely populated. And I've, I've identified where she would have watched it from because there are sort of executive boxes along one side. And you, you would have noticed her. Like, you know, this is the biggest media event in the world. Someone would have noticed her. So I'm not really buying that she was there. If she was, she was only there briefly. Uh, the IOC obviously had this dinner with her as well. Uh, Thomas Bach and Kirsty Coventry, who's a, a full IOC member, they say they didn't talk about the sexual assault allegations, which is, um, frankly, just, I am incredulous because if she is has had her life, if, she, if we are to believe the line and i don't then she's had her life ruined over the last four months by this international media storm the ioc is one of the most powerful bodies in the international media and she sat down with the head of it and not bothered to mention that she'd quite like to tell everyone that she didn't get sexually assaulted like it's just complete nonsense the ioc have been utterly flaccid in this affair and complicit in the chinese regime's attempts to sports wash their image uh what next they say that she will be at another event uh i will be eyes on stalks uh, everything i'm at it probably i mean the question is whether they will try and use her now you know the mixed curling be between china and norway is a bit of a nothing it was round robin you know it, it's a nothing match the chinese curling team are not very good they weren't gonna win a medal 
So the question now is whether they take her to one of the really high profile events, you know, maybe a speed skating final, which is a big deal here in China or, um, you know, potentially one of the cross country skiing events, which aren't in Beijing. So it's maybe a bit less likely. Uh, what people might not understand about Winter Olympics is Beijing, the city is on the plane and then you need to get the train and a couple of buses to get up to the mountains where the things like the skiing and the, the skeleton, the luge take place. Uh, and all the fake snow is, of course, there's no snow here, by the way. Like that, there is no real snow. The only snow is the stuff that gets like piped onto the mountain for the skiing. It's utterly bizarre. Like I was getting the the cable car up to the skiing yesterday, and the hill is just brown. Like it's just trees and rocks. And you're like, how on earth can this be a Winter Olympic venue? But anyway, it's not really relevant. So yeah, I think that'll be next. I think we'll see her at another event. We'll all be looking for her, and it'll be interesting to see where they they roll her out. I mean, I, I sort of, I don't like to trivialize it because. In the end, she's probably under control. Uh, and, you know, the, I think the IOC can be a lot stronger. I think the question for you guys is, how long can the WTA keep this up? Because someone asked me this yesterday because they knew that I covered a lot of tennis. And they said, you know, this is a hell of a lot of money. And the WTA have obviously doubled down. Like, there's not going to be a Chinese event, a WTA event in China for 15 years, is there? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think... It's, it's kind of an impossible position for them to back, back down from now. They've tried to take this big moral stance around it, which is, as we've all said before, absolutely the right stance. But it is also a fairly unusual stance, really, in terms of sporting bodies taking on China. Um, and the WTA isn't one of those bodies who perhaps can really afford to take on that fight and, uh, and win in many ways. I mean, I think the, the interesting business perspective is how close is an ATP WTA merger? Will there be financial support from them? Will indeed the ATP actually follow suit and stand with the WTA? I mean, the ATP are probably hoping this gets resolved by the time their calendar hits China sometime in kind of September, October time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's big questions for the WTA because, you know, they rely so heavily on a lot of that money from China and I'm not sure they can recuperate it because they're paying way over the market value. So they'd have to probably be looking at places. I don't, this isn't spoken from any authority about what they're looking at. I'm just picking some names out of the hat, but you know, you're talking about kind of Gulf states, you know, then Emirates, etc. That's the sort of state you'd be hoping. To kind oh, of good. Money. Famously great places for human rights. <laughs> but, but, but that's the sort of, you know, we know these countries do pay over the odds for these sporting events. That's why they get them. They want to kind of sports wash, turn their brand, uh, the image of their country more favorably by being linked to these sort of events, you know, British markets know the WTA market is not worth anything close to what the Chinese have been paying for it. And that, that's the reality of it as it is at the minute. So yeah, it's an interesting uh, business case for them. Um, before we move on, James, just for my own peace of mind to know that I won't have to be presenting this thing again like this. Um, when are you back from Beijing? uh what's today i think it's tuesday i think it's the eighth i think i'm back in 12 days uh so i will make you present one more pod george but i think everyone will agree you've done a cracking job yeah i maybe should reserve judgment well maybe i'll be slightly better next week and even if i'm terrible at least i'm flying off to cuba for holiday afterwards so i can i've been managing <laughs> long enough that people have forgotten about it by the time we get back um let's move on to the second half we're really hitting some tough issues actually because we're moving on to another legal challenge this one featuring a british player um emma raducanu this actually happened just before our last pod but we didn't really have enough time to give it um, the full kind of treatment it deserves because we were off the back of the Australian Open. But quite a shocking story, really. Um, a former Amazon delivery driver, Amrit Magar, who's 35, he was found guilty of stalking Radhikanu and he'll be sentenced this month. He visited her home, stole her father's shoe uh, in error, I believe, rather than actually wanting her dad's shoe. Well, I mean, in error, yeah, he thought it was her trainer. He didn't accidentally steal it. Like... <laughs> <laughs> that would be a weird twist, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. Not, not to belittle this story. Um, he left a note for her saying she deserved love 
and he drew a, this is quite strange really he drew a map showing the 23 miles he'd walked from north london edgware to her home down in bromley now that's really odd i mean how on earth you, i don't know if he'd been studying the map or what he'd been doing about it maybe we're getting a bit lost in the detail there but that that really yes yeah, so i think you're potentially like trying to rationalize the actions of an <laughs> irrational and not sane man so on his final trip to the house, I think there were three separate trips. This is the one where he stole the shoe of Mr. Raducanu. Um, Mr. Raducanu did follow him in his car, called the police and said, this crazy man's been turning up. He's got my shoe. I don't, I'm not sure he actually said that. But he might that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you need and to I mean, stop obsessing about the shoe, George. <laughs> he got picked up by police. Um, and, you know, seriously speaking, He's been sentenced since, and Emma has come out and said she's told the police she's constantly looking over her shoulder. She says she felt creeped out, feels apprehensive if she goes out. I mean, it's you know, she's global superstar, but it's easy to get. This is just a teenage girl being stalked by a middle aged man. It's pretty shocking stuff, isn't it, Calvin? Um, it's pretty bad, yeah. Um, I don't really know what to say on it. I think, as James tweeted last week, that there are these this strange group of people who seem to create things like they take these players or these celebrities' pictures off Instagram and then discuss them on Facebook groups, and it's really, really weird. Um, and it's something mm. that no no player, let alone any young female player, should have to deal with. Um, very, very... I thought, very, Calvin, very... Uh, when it came out, I remembered something you said, that she had turned up to the NTC last year with a security guard, and... Uh, it, we thought it was odd at the time, and I seem to think that in the context of that, it now makes a bit more sense. Yeah, perhaps so, yeah. I don't know whether it would have been around the same time or what, but even if it wasn't, I guess now it's not as um, not as an irrational a move as maybe what it first seemed like. Mm. Yeah. And I suppose as well, sorry to interrupt, but Calvin, you know, you, you know a lot of players, and, and female and male players, but it uh, applies more to female players, this is not something that someone who is world number 250 probably has to worry about too much. And then all of a sudden they're not world number 250. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that we maybe don't think about in terms of how quickly she was plummeted to superstardom, really that you don't, you don't really have chance to sort those things out, but it's even still a bit of a surprise to me though. Cause at the end of the day, it's, she's still a, a, a tennis player. You know, it's not really even one of the, the biggest sports in the world. Um, so yeah, just just really strange, but there's no way to rationalise it, is it? Anybody who's walking 24 miles to steal a shoe uh, is is not not right in the head. Yeah, that's the kind of knock on consequence. Now she's house hunting for a home in a gated community with CCTV and security systems, which you know I say is a shame, but I suppose it's kind of the rea reality of professional people in the public eye, athletes, etc. Um what, what would be particularly life-changing, I guess, for Emma is that most of those players who train at the NTC, which she did, they would generally get there by, if, they're, if they can't drive yet, which I'm not sure if she can or could for, for a while, they would generally get there by getting the train into Barnes Station and then walking through the park, which is, there have been muggins in that park, in the last five years and there have been people from the tennis center who've been mugged in there and then walking up to the national tennis center at priory lane and you know from being from literally she would have been doing that to sort of becoming a superstar within the space of i guess even the space I, I, she might even still have been doing that after wimbledon or maybe not but in the space of two months you're going from doing that to you need a security guard everywhere you go it's a, it's a strange step isn't it yeah, absolutely. And I, I I used to walk through that park, Calvin. Uh, glad you didn't tell me that beforehand, that people were getting mugged in there. I thought it was all very safe around Barnes. Very nice. Um, <laughs> that's where those type of people tend to do their business, isn't it? Places where they think other people think it's safe. <laughs> you mentioned there, Calvin, and here's another great segue from my wonderful presenting act uh, that you weren't sure if she can drive, which leads me nicely on to our little segment to finish the day 
where we're going to do a rapid round of tennis news because there actually was quite a lot this week of just really random things happening. Carlos Alcaraz passed his driving test this week. <laughs> Pretty exciting. Get in, Carlitos. Get in. I'm not really sure there's much to say about it, but I did think he looked really happy and I just wanted to acknowledge... When was the last time you saw a tennis player driving their own car? Well, they get driven mm, everywhere. Famously, Benoit Paire drives a yellow Ferrari around Paris. Um, I know that. (laughs) And um, Fernando Vadasco apparently was renowned for driving his range of supercars around Madrid and both of them living quite the playboy lifestyle. Um, but I know that what I don't really want to say who it is, but one Brit, one currently playing British superstar was renowned and still is to a degree for having the filthiest car at the National Tennis Centre um, <laughs> inside of it. Um, so, yeah, you can guess who that might be, but. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're, you're right, James. There's not many stories that, while well, the rest of you are guessing who that might be, there there aren't many stories about tennis players and cars. The one that was just springing to mind was actually, I think it was last year or the year before. I think it was around the pandemic. Well, obviously, we're still sort of vaguely in it, but I think it was Medvedev and Dimitrov and co were doing massive laps in Monte Carlo, like 100 miles an hour. Medvedev is a big, he's, he's a big car guy. He was... Um... He was out go karting the other day, actually. With oh, I can't remember who it was, but yeah, he he Medvedev is like he really likes cars. Um, you know, I mean, there's not there's nothing Daniel Medvedev doesn't like, as far as I can tell. But uh, yeah, I, there is a crossover there, isn't there? And and quite a lot of tennis players, are obviously Raducanu, for example, is really into F1. Um, I know that Carlos Sainz, the F1 driver, is really into tennis, but that's mostly because Carlos Sainz is posh. Um, but yeah, it, it's there is a lot of crossover there. But they don't get to drive. Like, presumably, if you spend 40 weeks a year on the road, um, metaphorically, you never actually get to do any driving yourself. And then you come back home. So I think this is a sign that Carlos Alcaraz actually has low expectations for his own career because he expects to spend a lot of time at home driving his own car. And we've, we deserve great congratulations, as does he, for talking about him passing his driving test for about four minutes. There. So that was pretty good. Um <laughs> move on to other sections of my quickfire round that was the one i was expecting to be the quickest and we dragged that out a bit so maybe i need to be a bit stricter on time for these bits um stefano Sissipas spotted with thomas Enkvist on court potentially a new coach i've written in my notes is it about time he ditched his dad i think we probably all agree on that and yes but calvin nods do we think this would be a good fit former australian open finalist Enkvist and what does he need to bring to Sissipas other than to stop coaching him on court? Well, without doing anything at all, he'll already have improved his first serve percentage, won't he? Because he loses about three per match with his dad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's quite an achievement for a new coach. Um, but yeah, I, I, look, I don't know his dad's background, but you know, in fairness to his dad, I, I, you know, I, it's all a bit dodgy that in fairness to his dad, he's not done a bad job, has he? Um, and I think mm. he's a tennis coach's dad. It's not like we're dealing with, you get some of these dads who they're down as the coach and, you know, you think they're more just the person who drives them around and sacks the coaches and then claims the credit at the back end of the career. In fairness to City Pass's dad, he is a, a an actual tennis coach. So he knows what he's doing. Um, it may just be um, someone to take the next step with that kind of thing. I don't really know much about Enkvist's record as a coach. Um, it's interesting how those guys, um, again, I'm not sure we could count Enkvist as a super coach, like a few years ago when you had um, Edberg and Lendl and that kind of um, player coming in. But I guess he's the first one of the next generation, isn't he? After those who's come in. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if we get who, like... Who else, who else is in that kind of generation? Um, I guess it'd be interesting to see if we... Well, now Moyer's there as well, to be fair. Carlos Moyer's been around for a bit, hasn't he? Um, mm. Maybe like... Uh, Ferrero. We've got Eugene. Yeah, Ferrero's there, good point. He's not one of the first the next generation. I'm talking yeah. rubbish there. Usually. Um, <laughs> I guess like, you know, Safin maybe. Um, Ooh, Maris Safin. I think Roddick. I think Safin might have captained Russia's ATP Cups in. Didn't yeah, he? well, he's done that. And then Hewitt's done the same, isn't he? Hewitt's had this involvement with um, 
with the Australian Davis Cup captain to um, subsidise his Grand Slam doubles career. That um, <laughs> been for a while, but um, yeah. So, but they, I'm not sure they've actually coached players. Um, just mainly seems to yeah. be the Spanish guys, doesn't it? I'm going to quickly run through the other title winners this week. We had we mentioned Bublik beating Zverev earlier, quite briefly. Mm-hmm. That was obviously a big surprise. But some other results you may have missed: Albert Ramos Vinales in Cordoba. He secured his third title in three years. Fourth in total. Can you guess what service? No, uh, Clay, obviously. Clay. He beat Chile's Alejandro Tabio in the final. Um, well done to him. Portugal's Jao Souza, also a winner in Pune, beating Emil Roussevori. That was also the fourth title of his career. Uh, does anyone have anything they wanted to add on Albert Ramos Vinolas and Jao Souza's eighth combined? Yeah, I think they, I don't really want them to still be a thing. <laughs> like, you know, Jao Souza's, I mean, basically keeping Jose Morgado in work, which I'm very grateful for because he's a brilliant journalist. Uh, Albert Ramos Vanolas probably losing to Carlos Alcaraz in Rio in 2020 is going to be the high point of his career. Uh, I, I would much rather that Emil Roussevori had won that title because he's actually going to have a proper career and he's from Finland, which is quite interesting. So, yeah, I, I, it's a terrible week for tennis. Or Albert, I, I would I would quickly jump in and say he did reach dizzying heights of world number seventeen, which is is pretty good on the back of only being able to play on clay, um, sort of in the the Garin It's mad, Garin. isn't it? The, the clay season's now starting in the first week of February. <laughs> <laughs> it's just absolute madness. It's now, I mean, can we really call it a clay season now? Because it goes it goes for about ninety percent of the tennis season. We've got events. Well, we, we just call it the Christian Garen season. <laughs> One man who might be keen to be playing right now, but is not, is a certain Dominic Teeth. He mm. pulled out Cordoba with a minor finger injury, but has now withdrawn from Argentina, Rio, and Chile opens. Apparently, not due to the wrist. He's aiming for Indian Wells. This is not panning out to be the season we were hoping for for team where I think we all were kind of hoping he was going to be back to vague full fitness and be another one of those guys back at the top of the game through some big matches. How concerned are we for his entire season or do we think he's just biding his time and then he's going to smash it on the clay, James? Uh, I think not too concerned because of the nature of the injury. If he said, oh, it's not a wrist, it's a shoulder, then I would be worried because... You know, what you see when people come back from long-term or medium-term injuries is they do get related pain and related injuries and, you know, mechanics change. I think this finger injury, I was reading about it, I think it is, you know, just not particularly specifically related to wrist. So I, I think it's just one of the things, you know, I think it's almost like blisters. Like, it's something that happens when you take time out of the game. Uh, it would be great to see him back. I think probably we can write him out of the French Open now. Not out in terms of playing, but in terms of a threat. You know, I, I probably would have wanted to see him playing a South American swing and the Sunshine swing and then take a couple of weeks off, maybe play one European tournament and play the French. Like, because I think with team, he is someone who needs matches. He always has played a lot of matches and he maybe he'll maybe that'll change. Maybe he'll, he'll turn into someone who can just come in cold, but I, I would want to see him playing a lot more matches. I'm not particularly concerned. Uh, but I did have a thought the other day that Dominic Team might be a guy that in 15 years' time we say, oh, remember Dominic Team rather than the six-time Grand Slam winner I think he should be. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very sad, really, because it felt to me like he was only going up from that US Open win. You know, he saw him in the ATP Finals. He was in stunning form there as well. And then it's all kind of gone quite badly wrong since Calvin... Is he going to be ready in time to be a French Open contender? I mean, there are a lot of tournaments before the French Open where he can get those matches, I suppose. But do you think he'll seamlessly slot back into the tour and be a major threat on clay? I think it's far from definite because it's it's over a year. Did he make the Aussie Open final last year? Was it? Yeah. No. Oh, no, no. It was Medvedev last year. It was the year before. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's been a long time now since he was competitive at... Um, at the highest level, I guess the ATP Finals 2020 was the last time. 
But even though he played quite a bit at the start of last season, he was in terrible form, wasn't he? Um, and then this injury came up. So I think anybody, if you take, if you've not been winning proper matches for over a year, there's it's far from definite that you're coming back to any sort of level. I'm not saying he won't. I think it's it's likely that he will. He's a, he's a quality player, but when you've had that long off, it's not um, it's not definite whatsoever. Well, that's the end of our, our fast fast fire tennis roundup segment, which leaves me to ask the question that James Gray loves asking more than any question in the world. And normally I'm there to answer it, but will anyone step up this week as I have with the presenting? Any other business? Uh, I'm quite looking forward to my pork dumplings for breakfast. I can smell them already. Um, uh, just a quick one. I think a um, little bit of British success. I think Lloyd Glasspool made the final of a doubles tournament in, say, Montpellier, was it? Um, losing to Mahu and his massively anti-vax partner. Um, I forget his name now. Yeah, Uge. Yeah, Uge's Albert. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. Good. Play well done, Lloyd. Well done to Lloyd. Well, that's the end of this podcast. It's one of two podcasts. You have to deal with me doing the full presenting rather than James. So if you didn't enjoy it this week, feel free to skip next week and your reward will be three weeks without me. See you all soon. Podcast Network. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.